welcome to another episode of Sounds Japanese Canadian to me, with me, Raymond Nakamura. And me, Carolyn Nakagawa. Now, what are we going to talk about today? Well, I was thinking when we were recording our last episode about Japan, how when I went to Japan, at least, the least unfamiliar thing to me, and maybe the only thing that wasn't unfamiliar, mm-hmm. was food. Japanese food, and I was、right. so happy when I was in Japan. I was probably better fed there than I am now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, definitely, I was definitely better fed there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Might have been the best food period of my whole life. <laughs> well, that's interesting about the food periods. It's, it's true. I, I realized that my relationship to food, Japanese food in particular, has these phases because when I was growing up in Toronto, obviously in my household, my mom was cooking, and that Phase. And then I lived in Japan for a little while and I was living on my own, being associated with new Japanese food as well as traditional Japanese food and having to cook on my own.、Mm-hmm. People would say, Oh, you must be a good cook by now. And I said, No, it's just I learned how to tolerate anything. <laughs>、um, and then, then now living in Vancouver and also later in time,、uh, it's sort of a new era of Japanese food. The fact that sushi places are as common as Starbucks, you know, and everybody, it's just sort of a common thing now. Japanese food is, is a regular thing, at least in, in places like Vancouver and Toronto. But I think there are still a lot of associations with food. Yeah, and I think that when you are Japanese Canadian, like maybe everyone you know knows about sushi and it's so trendy. Your friends who aren't Japanese Canadian might eat sushi more than you, but、mm-hmm. we have like our own things that you kind of grow up with that are difficult, if not impossible, to explain to other people. Right, yeah. Well, even with sushi, I, I very rarely ate it when I was younger. Yeah. And growing up. And、uh, in Japan, my rule was only if somebody else was paying that I did it because <laughs> it was expensive. That's a good rule. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, Now, now it's just, they're covered with all these goopy sauces that don't really seem like sushi. <laughs> but it's tasty. Yeah. But、and、yeah, it, it's and, not really the stuff you grew up with. Yeah. But it does have rice. And this is, this is one of the things I think that's fundamental、yeah. uh, as far as Japanese food. Well,、goes. if we're going to talk about Japanese food, we have to talk about rice. Yeah. And, <laughs> and even the Japanese themselves, they're using the word gohang to mean both rice and meal. Yes. So that it's, it's fundamental to it. And, and a friend of mine, Hannah Deathlifson has produced a book called Let's Cooking, sort of a Japlish title.、Mm-hmm. But she divided up a basic meal as being gohang, soup, and okazu. So something、mm-hmm. to go along with that. So it's,、yeah. it's interesting to think that that's such a fundamental structure that the rice is always in there. Yeah, no matter what. And growing up, of course, it was always the short grain Japanese rice、yeah. uh, that we had. And the worst other end of that spectrum of rice was a commercial I saw on Minute Rice where Alice from the Brady Bunch was advertising how to cook it with orange juice. Ooh. And yeah. <laughs> so, no. That was. That was Why? That, was, that was sort of the, the nightmare scenario、uh, yeah. as far as rice went. But, oh, it's bad enough when、um, people do it with soy sauce. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> so, so we have this uh, uh, thing about the rice, and I remember we used to get it delivered in the big sacks. There was a, a delivery man, and、oh, yeah? there was a special way in which it was sewn up. I don't、mm. know if you, you had rice in the sacks like that, but there was a string、mm-hmm. and there was a special knotting that if you untied it in a certain way, it would just go and then come right undone. But、okay. if you did it the other way, then it wouldn't come undone. So、oh. there's, there's like a secret way for doing the, 
Was that how they still do the big sacks with like Coca-Cola Rose? It's possible. I, I don't buy such large um, sacks anymore, and and the bags that I get are because they do have a string at the top, and it is really hard to remove. So maybe I'm just doing it wrong. Well, yeah. So there's there's one, and I, I can't remember what it is now, but <laughs> the, there's the way so that it comes off very right. easily. Once you undo the first knotting of it at mm-hmm. the right end, then it will come off. That. Mm. Uh, and I I remember seeing uh, different artifacts in in places like in. Uh, in Greenwood at their museum, mm-hmm. they had these curtains made from rice sacks. And I've heard of, oh. of people who made their judo pants from rice sacks. And, mm-hmm. and so the cloth, when they were hard up in particular, right. and I suppose just being frugal mm-hmm. in, in general could be reused in different ways. Well, yeah, if it's good quality, or I guess not good, not fine silk rice sacks, but, you know, you couldn't do that with, paper the paper sacks yeah, that they have yeah, now yeah yeah that's right so the the reusing being a keystone of yeah of now environmentalism but yeah. back then it was related to being frugal more diy potential yeah <laughs> yeah that's right you could be using it for lots of different things mm-hmm. uh and then i remember when we were little one of the jobs we would have would be washing the rice Oh, yeah. And making sure, though, that you didn't crunch it all up so it got all really mushy. But then you're supposed to make it so that the water was clear. Although now I see that the bags say you don't need to wash. I've never, I never washed rice growing up. I didn't even know it was a thing until I was an adult. And I started talking to other people about cooking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to be honest, I can't really tell the difference. And some people say that there are vitamins and things that are added on the outside. So so that you're not supposed to. But I I still, uh, as a creature of habit, still tend to rinse it a bit. So that the water is not cloudy. But, you know. Uh, And, of course, we had a rice cooker. So you just push the button. And Mm -hmm. when I was in Japan, I had a fancier one that had the programming. And, and, you know, like they have all these variations right or you can set the timer yes so it'll be ready uh, it, when you wake up yeah that's right that's I right wish I had that. <laughs> yeah yeah the one that we use now has a thicker pot it's almost a centimeter thick oh yeah so it seems to hold the heat better than the thin mm. aluminum ones have you ever cooked it just in a regular pot i think i have just like in foods class but i think it would have been long grain rice, oh like in school. oh i see yeah like they yeah. teach you how to make rice and i'm like i don't need to learn how to make rice <laughs> <laughs> Well, there is one element of it where you get the kind of burnt bits on the bottom, which makes oh, yeah. it almost like sembe or something, right? Um, and one time I was joining a Boy Scout troop in Japan, and they were mm-hmm. actually cooking the rice in pots over a fire, right? which was interesting that they had to sort of keep an eye on right. when it was ready. Yeah, it is more challenging when you have to do it on the stove. Yeah, I mean, a rice cooker makes it a no-brainer, but yeah. it's interesting to think about the application of technology that... that how important <laughs> from my yeah. standpoint how critical it was having a, a rice cooker yeah when i was first on my own there was about five seconds where i didn't have a rice cooker and that was difficult <laughs> well my roommates had rice cookers oh because i had asian roommates yeah oh i, <laughs> I see. think at one time i was living like with four people sharing one kitchen and there were three rice cookers <laughs> so we were set we were good yeah uh, yeah you were covered uh, that's good yeah and then there's the other thing of what to do if you ha- actually have leftover rice. Mm-hmm. And I was reading in my friend Hannah's book that it's better to freeze it. Yeah, I read that too and I started to do that. I started to do that and I was freezing it flat so it uh, sort of reheat more evenly. Right. Except that you sort of start using up all these plastic bags, the Ziploc bags. It's true. And so Not I, I very environmentally friendly. So, well, initially I thought it was a good idea mm-hmm. and it does taste better. That it doesn't dry out as much as if you keep it mm-hmm. in the fridge. But I'm at an in-between stage right now as to whether it's practical to be freezing the leftovers. Yeah. 
So you had visions of another way in which you had rice. Yeah, well, when I didn't have a microwave, that was also a slightly longer period. It was a few months when I didn't have a microwave. Uh-huh. When I was either putting my rice in the fridge or freezing it, I would just use up all my rice by making uh, chagai, mm-hmm. which is a word that I just learned a couple months ago. Uh-huh. In my family, we call it okai-san, uh-huh. but it's where you cook the rice, or you're supposed to do it like, I guess, dry rice and cook it in green tea until it's goopy, but I just do it with leftover rice, so it's like a combination of chagai and ochazuke, which is where you just pour the tea over some leftover rice. Yeah, But it's sort of like a part of this whole set of Japanese comfort foods that are mm-hmm. basically rice porridges, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's okayu, which is where you cook the rice in water, which is where my family's word okai-san comes from. It's like a baby talk version of okayu. Oh. But we always cook it with tea, so it's not actually okayu uh-huh. or okai-san. It's chagai or chagayu. I wonder if that has to do with poverty. I mean, in terms, if you had to use water versus tea. Like, tea seems like it would be fancy. Maybe. Or even like... My dad said that one of the reasons why you make okai-san or chagai is because it makes the rice go farther because it absorbs all that mm. water and it's more yeah, it's filling. Bigger. Yeah. But it's, that was my favorite food growing up because I was so picky, so I would just eat okai-san all the time. I've heard also that it is a very Steveston thing, like a fisherman thing uh-huh. in Canada, like Japanese-Canadian fishermen would always have their chagai. Mm-hmm. on the boats and that makes sense because my grandmother was from a fishing family oh i see so all the hallmarks of a japanese canadian fishing family are in our food uh-huh. but in japan it's a specialty of not a prefecture along with sushi wrapped in persimmon leaves those are the two things that apparently not persimmon known leaves for. wow i had i never heard of that i think it's a it's like an old-fashioned way of preserving it somehow to wrap them in persimmon leaves I don't oh. know if you eat the persimmon leaves, but that was the other specialty of Nara. Not that I had chagai in Nara, but apparently it is a local specialty. Hmm. Well, if anybody's going to Nara, then put that on your list of things to try. Yeah, it's good. You can also just make it at home. There's all sorts of like food blogs that are talking about how healthy it is as well. Oh, really? Yeah, because it's, I guess, easy on your waistline. It's like low fat. Low fat. I don't know. Because there are it's, concerns about eating too much rice, people getting diabetic and stuff. I don't know. I mean, it seems to be okay with most of Japan. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's the thing. Rice it's three Asia. times a day. It's, yeah, it's fundamental to uh, it. So I guess it's all the other stuff that, that leads Yeah, to you have to balance it out with all your beans and dark leafy yeah, greens yeah. and fish. Yeah. Did you ever do that thing with ochazuke where if you had like leftover sashimi, where you soak it in shoyu overnight with in soy sauce and then you sort of bury it in hot rice and pour hot tea over it so it cooks it? Wow, no, that sounds good though. That, that sounds like a fisherman thing to do. I think that was another thing that came from my grandma that we used to do if we had sashimi and then there was any leftover. Yeah. And then it's, it's ochazuke with the yeah. oh. shoyu soaked fish. Wow, this is like a mouth-watering episode. <laughs> this is all the ideas. You should listen to this podcast before lunch yeah. and then make your lunch. Although you have for that one, it's a two-step thing. You have to have sashimi, mm-hmm. dinner, and then the yeah. next day, lunch. Yeah. You have your ochazuke. And you had another favorite related to rice, the stuff that you put on the rice. Yeah, furikake. Uh-huh. You remember furikake? Well, I... Did you have that growing up? Yeah, we had furikake, but my problem, and I'm still on the search for this, is mm-hmm. because it always has sesame seeds. And oh. I'm allergic to sesame seeds. Oh, no. So I could never use furikake. So there is the chazuke stuff that yeah. doesn't have it in there. So yeah. I use that or I use the, I just get nori in the mm-hmm. bottle. 
Do you ever use the red shiso, the yukari? Because that's just like yeah, red yeah, I, powder. I, there's I, no goma in it. I'm okay with that, but it's not my favorite thing. So okay, that's what I used to have when I lived in Japan, and I had a host family, and my host mom would make me a bento. Uh huh. She would always oh, use I the see. the yukari, but it's funny because that's actually my Japanese name. Oh, yukari. So it felt like special. Uh huh. Oh, I see your own food. Yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, when I was growing up, I did not eat plain rice until I was maybe about ten years old because I would always have furikake on it all the time, and we had this like egg furikake. It was like oh, the yeah, dried yeah. egg pellets yeah. and the yeah. nori. Not that I really like the dried egg pellets, but I guess I found it more interesting than plain rice. Uh-huh. But it was really interesting to look into the history of furikake because apparently it was invented in the Taisho era in Japan. So it's wow. pretty modern. That's twentieth century, early twentieth century. Yeah, but still pretty long ago. Well, but like compared to the history of chagai, which I'm sure is oh, you know okay. from yeah. you know the golden but, age of nada. But you do think of it as an industrial thing because it's dried. I bits, guess so. So it seems like it. But requires... I mean, it's the what is actually in furikake is yeah, vastly basic. different. Yeah. But his idea, the inventor of furikake, was a pharmacist. Oh. And he wanted to help people who were having deficiencies in calcium. Oh. So he ground up some fish bones and mixed it with some other things so that they would get Oh, to add it. That's interesting. To balance yeah, it it's, it's actually hmm. used even nowadays sometimes as a nutritional supplement hmm. for calcium and protein. So it was really important in the post-war years. Right. When we talked about the, the famine that was in Japan, it's one of those things that's helpful because it doesn't take up a lot of space and it's dried, so it will keep well. Mm-hmm. It was also important for soldiers fighting in World War One mm. and after Fukushima. Oh yeah. Yeah, as you know, sort of a disaster relief type thing to help oh, people get quickly, their nutrients yeah. with their rice, with right. the dried furikake. So it's been a really important addition to Japanese diet in times of crisis. So your childhood was a time of crisis. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. Just a time of really picky eating. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I guess is a crisis for parents. That's a good point, yeah. Crisis. So so you can't really criticize people putting shoyu on their rice then. I mean, you're adding flavor in that case. Well, too. but you're not adding calcium and protein. You're just adding <laughs> okay. sodium. <laughs> All right, so it's fair enough. From Furikake. Yeah. They actually yeah. had a Furikake Grand Prix. They started it in 2014, mm-hmm. and they had another one this past fall in Kumamoto Prefecture in Japan, oh. which is mm-hmm. where apparently where this pharmacist invented it. Really? Where like all of these, you know, companies from all over Japan made different kinds of furikake uh-huh. and visitors sampled it over bowls of steamed rice oh, wow. and they voted for their the best ones. So the uh-huh. winner was uh-huh. a squid and kombu kelp furikake. Wow. And then first runner-up was an ume flavored with hichihi seaweed. So ume flavor is pretty classic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the third place, I thought this was the most interesting, was a natto furikake. Oh. Yeah. So it's dried. It's dried, but when you put it on the steamed rice, the steam for the rice sort of rehydrates it. Oh, I see. And it apparently replicates the aroma and taste of natto. And it makes it all sticky and everything still. I don't know. And I mean, I guess it's still furikake. It's not just some sort of crazy freeze-dried natto. Yeah, oh, interesting. So what is your take on natto? I like natto. Uh-huh. I had never had it before I moved to Japan. Mm-hmm. And then when I was staying with the family that I stayed with, that was a normal breakfast thing for them. So, so that's like, like fermented... It's fermented soybeans, soy right? and yeah. they're kind of infamous for being really pungent and yeah. strong flavored. Right. They're really good for you. Really, uh-huh. really good for you. That's one of the, like, I had really good iron levels when I was in Japan. Oh, and you attribute that to be eating natto regularly. Yes. Oh. Yeah. So I decided I was going to try it when I was there 
for breakfast for a week. Uh-huh. Because I was like, at first I was like, I don't know about this. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So I was like, you know, I'll eat it every day for a week. And if I don't want it after that, then I won't have it. Yeah. And then after a week, after a week, I did want it. So uh-huh. it's, it's an acquired taste. Uh-huh. Well, and that's an interesting point. I was just listening to this uh, documentary with Michael Pollan about cooking and, and food. Oh, yeah. And he was did talking he about... Natto? Well, <laughs> he didn't specifically mention natto, but he was talking about how cultures all around the world tend to have fermented foods mm-hmm. that also tend to be acquired tastes. Mm-hmm. So that it's almost a way of defining a culture. If you are used to eating this kind of thing, then you're sort of on the inner circle. So and if you're a stranger and you first encounter it, you're grossed out. So that this fine line between something you like and something that's disgusting is often associated with fermented foods. Mm-hmm. And the fermentation process actually makes it healthier because the microbes are breaking down the mm-hmm. components that would otherwise not be digestible. Yeah, and it also preserves it too, right? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of what other cultures have that are like that. I guess like Europeans, cheese. Yeah, exactly. Cheese, like yogurt, cheese yeah, stinky cheeses, yeah, and yeah. and Korean have the kimchi. That's that's yeah. a fermented thing. I mean, I and, don't I don't think this is not fermented, but I also think of durian. Yeah, as well, being yeah, so, but it's not fermented. Yeah, it just yeah. is like but that. On that's that. right. <laughs> yeah, it has that that implication. Yeah. Yeah. When I was in Japan at the Marine Station where I was studying, there mm-hmm. were people from different parts of Japan, mm-hmm. and there were some people. A fellow from Tokyo who loved natto, mm-hmm. and then people from the southern part of Japan wouldn't be in the same room <laughs> if he were eating natto. I don't think it's that. Smelly. I know. I didn't people see it as b- totally such a big deal. I know. It seems like an extreme reaction, but some people uh, seem to put it in that category. Yeah, I also think that for the Japanese natto, that sliminess mm. is really like a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that I remember my host family eating when I was in Japan was what they called tamago kake gohan. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of that? No, but I can so, sort of imagine. Yeah, because tamago is egg, kake is like you pour oh the raw egg. Out. So raw egg on yeah, rice yeah, yeah. with yeah. mixed with soy sauce, yeah, and you just yeah. like mix it all yeah, together, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's like that right. sort of slimy right. oh, that that's they true. like. Yeah. Yeah, that's an yeah. interesting point. Yeah, I remember having that for breakfast. Oh, and, I, I did not. I and, was not brave enough and, for that. And then you can also have the nori as well with it. Oh, yeah. So apparently the slang for that is TKG. Tamago kake gohan. Oh, <laughs> wow. I, I didn't get the slang, but I, I had it for breakfast when I was at. Oh, I was never brave enough to do that. I was like, I don't want to commit this entire bowl of rice to being soaked in raw I, I was envisioning Rocky. Have you seen the first Rocky where he drinks raw eggs in the morning before going on his run? No, I guess well, that's super gross to a Western audience. I mean, I don't have a problem with raw egg because I grew up eating sukiyaki. Uh-huh. Yeah. So if you had that, then what was the big thing about putting it on the rice? Because I don't like a lot of egg on my sukiyaki. Oh, I see. I was like, well, what if I don't like this and then I have a whole bowl of it? Right, right. And I guess with the sukiyaki, did you put it on it or did you have it as a dipping thing? Yeah, it's a dip. Yeah, so so, so, so you're so not... sukiyaki, yeah, it, for right, those right, who are right. not familiar, is it's like a hot pot dish. Yeah. You cook it on the table in front of you and it's thin sliced beef and different like vegetables and things and you cook them in this like sauce that's very sweet and has soy sauce and mm-hmm. sake in it. And then you take it out and the idea is because it's right in front of you on the table and you take it out when it's steaming hot, mm-hmm. then you dip it in a raw egg that's been mixed up. And it's supposed to cook a thin layer of the egg onto the meat or the vegetables or the tofu. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if that's actually... Well, true. I seem to cool it off anyway. I guess. Yeah. But, I mean, you can cool it off in a lot of other ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah but sure. I was told that it's theoretically it cooks a thin layer of the egg and you're cooking the egg on the super hot food. Oh. 
and I then see. you eat it. Uh, I remember when I was in Japan, we had these separate oil heaters, standalone things, and like, then so,、uh, like a little、um, well, fairly, fairly, yeah. Well, it wasn't an open flame, but there was a heat on the inside, so they were heating the room. But then you could also cook things on top. Okay. And so we had skiaki one time,、mm. uh, doing it that way. And I realized in Japan, where they a lot of times they didn't have central heating, that cooking an open pot meal like that helps warm the room. Whereas in Canada, I never really thought about the function of having a, a meal like that. Yeah, it is a winter dish for sure. Although it is something also that when we would visit my grandma's sister in Japan, that was like the special occasion meal、mm. was sukiyaki. So that that carried forward. Like there were other things she would serve us that we'd never heard of before.、Mm-hmm. But she would make a sukiyaki, and she made it in the sort of I guess the Western Japan style.、Mm-hmm. I was looking at how Japanese look at sukiyaki. So Tokyo or like more Eastern style is where you make the sauce, the broth, like you mix it up in advance and then you pour it in. The, the pot,、uh-huh. but kansai style is、uh-huh. where you sprinkle the shoyu and the sugar directly on the the meat. Oh, and you sort of make it right in the pot with the other ingredients.、Mm-hmm. And I remember when my mom saw my great aunt doing that, she was like, "Oh, I have to learn how to do it that way because we've been doing it like mixing up in advance." She's like, "I must learn. <laughs> I must figure it out." And I was like, "I don't. I mean, I don't know if it tastes different. Like, I've never、mm. noticed that it tastes different that way. But apparently, it's an East versus West thing." Oh. And I don't know how we ended up in my family doing it the Eastern way,、hmm. except maybe that like my grandma thought it would be easier for us to do it that way. Having it prepared. Yeah, I mean it is because you can sort of measure it out. And, but if you're going to be real sukiyaki cook, because I think that's how my mom thinks of it. <laughs> <laughs> but we had beef sukiyaki. It's traditional, right? Yeah. Apparently, you can do it with like pork too. I, I、oh. don't really remember doing that. We always had chicken sukiyaki. Really? Like with chicken thighs. That、oh. was pretty common in my family too.、Hmm. I don't like. I think that's probably not like technically correct, but I think that it's something that people do. Sure.、So、we also had salmon sukiyaki, which is different. Oh、right. yeah. Do you have that? No. Well, that sounds it's, good. It's not really sukiyaki because you don't you do the egg part. Yeah. But this was like my grandma's specialty dish. Was where, where it was sort of a sukiyaki like sauce, and、mm. you cook salmon and green onions and tofu in the pot. Mm. And you have this really delicious sauce.、And、we called it salmon sukiyaki, but I just found out that the correct name for it is jibu. Oh, oh, okay. So that's a fisherman thing. I've heard of it. Yeah, it's another fisherman thing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. I haven't had it, but I'd heard of it. They were talking about even doing them on the boat. Yeah. So that they would they'd、exactly. be out there for days. So they. So that's my other favorite food. Hmm. And even people who don't know much about Japanese food might know about the song. Oh yeah, sukiyaki the song. I didn't hear about it until I went to Japan because it's a much older song. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was popular in the '60s. I think so. The song "Sukiyaki" was the only Japanese song to top the Billboard Hot 100. Oh. And I was wondering, like, why is it called "Sukiyaki"? Uh huh. Yeah. It's just a song about looking at the sky so that the tears in your eyes won't spill over. Uh huh. To the ground, which is really sad. But every time I've seen any recording of a Japanese person singing it, they always look so happy. It's the strangest <laughs> thing. <laughs> so I did some digging on that, and the actual name of the song is not sukiyaki. Right. Although even in Japan they do call it sukiyaki. Oh. Not always, but like it is acknowledged as an alternate title. Oh. 
It's called Ue Umuite Aruko, which is the first line of the song, mm-hmm. meaning like look up while you're walking. And it was retitled Sukiyaki when they brought it over from Japan. I think it was like a DJ or something who said like, no, we can't pronounce that. People are not going to be able to pronounce the name of that song. So let's just call it Sukiyaki because people will recognize that as a Japanese word. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know how famous Sukiyaki was at the time. <laughs> There's no reason. It has nothing to do with the lyrics. Uh-huh. There's not like a part that I missed completely that's about the love for sukiyaki. It's just a generic Japanese word to refer to this song. I was more surprised to find out that it was originally a Japanese song. It so is. when I was, yeah, because uh, I had heard of it only in English, and then when I went to Japan, oh. I heard them singing Japanese. I thought, oh, it actually sounds like a Japanese song. <laughs> it is. The lyrics were written by a person named Rokusuke A, or A Rokusuke, probably in Japanese. Mm-hmm. He actually wrote those lyrics, apparently, the stories that he was walking home from a Japanese student protest mm. against American army presence in Japan. Wow. So it's That's... about how he feels like, you know, these protests are meaningless and the movement that he was part of ended up, you know, the government just pushed through the thing they were protesting without making any changes. So it was this fruitless protest and he felt so sad and frustrated at like the sense of powerlessness politically. Wow. But the lyrics are vague, so people think it's about yes. lost love. Wow. And that that's especially ironic then that that particular song came to the United States when it was inspired by this protest. It is. And I even found a quote from this American scholar of Japanese culture who said it was like a symbol of Japan's reemergence on the world stage after the war. You know, it came out in the West in 1963. Mm-hmm. And 1964 was the Tokyo Olympics. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, Ian Condry, who's a prof of Japanese culture at MIT, says the song is kind of an interesting metaphor for that global expansion of Japan on the world scene. Mm-hmm. And it was written as a protest to the the Treaty of Mutual Cooperation and Security between the United States and Japan, which allows the United States to have troops in Japan, right. which to this day is still a thing. Yes. And also, it seems like that was part of what enabled the United States to wage the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. So the song was written in like late 50s, early 60s. So it was right around that time. Because there's the Korean was, War. Korean War was in the 50s, yeah. in 50 to 53. Yeah. The Vietnam War was around that time. So the thing that he was protesting was actually like pre-Vietnam War protests. Mm. But it's just sukiyaki. Mm. <laughs> wow. Food for thought. Yeah. And sukiyaki is a really Japanese-Canadian thing, too, because I was looking up to see if there's anything that the museum had to do with sukiyaki. Uh-huh. And apparently in the displays in New Denver, at Nikkei Internment Memorial Center in New Denver, they have, like, a little can of sukiyaki no tomo, which is, like, a can of different accompaniments that you'd have with sukiyaki or sort of special noodles mm. and the mushrooms and bamboo shoots right. in a can. So it's just easy. Just add meat and sauce. Oh. Although I yeah, kind of doubt they had sukiyaki beef in New Denver. The finely The thinly thin, cut, fine right. beef. Marbled. Yeah. Now, speaking of Denver, mm-hmm. <laughs> here's a tenuous connection, but there was the, <laughs> the dimbazuke. Oh, uh, And right. uh, the idea of pickles. So I had heard of that word before, but it was only until I bought them at one of the bazaars here that I saw it spelled like New Denver, Denver. Like and, Denba. And Denba, Denver, yeah. Instead of like some sort of den meaning electricity or something Yeah, like well, that. I don't... I don't <laughs> Who knows? Who knows, that, right? That, yeah. I just... I, it never occurred to me that it was related to that. The kind of pickle that they have and related to that is the taco on the yellowy 
kind of incandescent oh, yeah. yellow yellow one made from the daikon. Right. So I always like eating those with rice mm -hmm. and, and chazuke. And I remember being in Japan in Kagoshima, mm -hmm. where there's an active volcano, the Sakurajima. Oh. And they claim that because of the volcanic ash, they're able to grow these extra big daikon. Oh. So whenever you went to any restaurant there, you would get these takuan pickles. Oh, so uh, it's like their appetizer. local pride. Yes, is yes, the, is that's the right. giant takuan yeah, pickles. Yeah, that's right. So you, you mm. had them everywhere. Wow. That was part of the things of what you might eat with rice. Pickles are also a really important part of traditional Japanese mm -hmm. eating too. Like they are a kind of okazu, like a side dish, yes. but it's like a special thing like pickles. Right. I remember looking at traditional rules for making bento boxes and it's oh. something like four parts rice three parts vegetables, two parts meat or beans or protein of some kind, and one part pickles or sweets, like some kind of treat, mm. which I don't know. I don't consider pickles a treat, but... <laughs> They're not your thing. <laughs> They're really not my thing. I think everything ultimately connects to rice. But the other thing that I wanted to talk about with rice was the mochi. Oh, and yeah. and when you pound the rice in the, in the mortar, and then, have you ever had it when it's just been pounded? I think I had when I was in Japan because we did the mochitsuki. Mm, oh, you you yeah. tried doing that in it's, Japan? Yeah, it, it's, those mallets are really heavy, right? Yeah, and, and you and, have to hit it really hard. Yeah, yeah. And then did you have somebody sticking their hand in in between the poundings to <laughs> to turn it around? I don't remember, probably. <laughs> oh, well, I've seen it demonstrated where they're doing it quickly, and then somebody in between the pounds sticks his hand in and turns it over and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Yeah, and we do that, too, at the Nikkei Center here. Mm -hmm. uh, right, at, at the December 29th every year. Yeah. But, yeah, it was something that I hadn't seen until I went to Japan, but it's a really traditional New Year's thing that some Japanese-Canadian families do mm -hmm. still to this day. One of the side effects, though, of using a wooden mallet is sometimes you get slivers in the mochi, so oh, really? you have to be careful. <laughs> Well, mochi is dangerous anyway. Oh, some people die of you choking on it. You can die from it. choking on it. People yeah, do. if they, yeah. I, yeah. I haven't died yet, but the, <laughs> I, I, I always I. like, like on New Year's, again, talking about times when you eat it on New Year's, mm -hmm. having it in the zoni. Mm -hmm. The soup. Cooked, yeah, the soup. And apparently that's also a regional thing of, of different it? styles. Mm -hmm. Well, there's slightly different styles of, of making the zoni. Mm. Also, I like to put it in the toaster oven so then it gets toasted and it sort of explodes and then Whoa. then I realized how it's connected to rice crackers the senbei because the outside gets all really crispy mm -hmm. and then the inside is gooey and you have it with the sugar and the shoyu yeah mochi is one of those things that my family never ate but then I discovered it and in Japan it's amazing yeah so it's like a whole new world of Japanese food. Mm -hmm. It's always expanding. You can always discover Ever new expanding, things. that's right. Some of those things I can leave. You can leave <laughs> like, some of them. Like, oh, raw mackerel. Oh, yeah? You don't like that? It's very oily. Yeah. But then you have a little bit of vinegar to, to cut it a little bit. I can't eat pickles. And the ginger. Oh, <laughs> that's yeah, that's right. Thing. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, some of these things I can leave behind, but mochi, uh -huh. mochi, I love. So I just heard my stomach gurgling after all this eating. Maybe, yeah, I think maybe, it's lunchtime. Yeah, I, 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 I guess we should wrap it up. This is one of those things that, you know, we had this very idiosyncratic way of looking at Japanese food and our experience of Japanese food as Japanese Canadians. But we could talk about this all week, couldn't we, Raymond? Absolutely. Yeah, and I'm sure that people listening have other favorite dishes and experiences and memories about the things we talked about, the things we didn't talk about. So hopefully people will be inspired to share those stories. I'll make a little Facebook post on the museum and you can send in comments on our website and that would be fun to have a discussion about. Mm -hmm. All right, till next time. Yeah.